Good morning. How's everyone doing? Great. It's always interesting asking that in a crowd, you know, I just expect a conversation or dialogue to happen, but, you know, I was just being nice. Uh, but I am glad to hear that some of you guys are doing well. Uh, I'm grateful to be here, uh, grateful to be able to uh, open God's word, talk about it, uh, and hopefully be inspired and encouraged uh, by it. So if you have your Bibles, we'll go to Matthew chapter 14, and we will read verses 22 to 33. Uh, I'm reading from the CSB version, so you'll see it here on the screen. Uh, so we'll read this, and it reads... <clears throat> Immediately, he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he, dismissed, while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well, into the night, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from the land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus came toward them. <clears throat> Jesus came toward them walking on the sea very early in the morning. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them. Have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter answered him. Command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, you of little faith. Thank you, brother. You of little faith, why do you doubt? When they, Jesus and Peter, got into the boat, the wind ceased. And then those on the boat worshipped him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your kindness. Uh, as we sang songs to you, as we reflected on your words God, I pray that now, Holy Spirit, you would allow them to seep into us, into our bones, that for these next few moments, God, they would set the course of what this week may look like. They would set the course of what this month may look like. That They would set the course in the way that we engage with one another, the way that we engage with our kids, with our spouses, with our friends, in our workplaces. God, the way that we engage with ourselves, I pray that these words and what you may have for us may seep deeply into us. God, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes, our minds to see and to understand what you have for us, that we would take a hold of it, that flipping through these pages, reading these words uh, wouldn't be mundane activity, but that each flipping of the page, each reading of the word would be an opportunity to see and experience your company. Holy Spirit, would you do that for us today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> in 2017, I published a memoir. It's called Mikasa Uptown. Very proud of that book uh, and very grateful for the opportunity to have done so. 
My publisher, there's <clears throat> an interesting engagement with them on the early stages of publishing. Uh, the book essentially uh, covers my life in many respects. Uh, the intersection of immigrant life, the intersection of uh, inner city New York, the intersection of hip-hop culture, the intersection of immigrant culture, speaking Spanish, navigating English, the, the, the implications of all that uh, is a lot of what my book covers, and of course, my journey with faith. And one of the ideas that I had that I brought to the publisher early on was I wanted the book to kind of be a visual rep representation of the way that I navigated the world. And much of the way that I navigated the world was like a dance where I kind of slipped in and out of Spanish and English. Um, my, my parents are from the Dominican Republic. They mostly spoke Spanish. And whenever they needed someone to translate for them, when someone called speaking in English or when they went to parent-teacher conference and the teacher only spoke English, I was the translator, literally the translator, but in many respects, I was also kind of the cultural translator, helping them understand why certain things uh, I did, you know, as part of kind of like my New York City, inner city culture, and they didn't understand that as immigrants from the Dominican Republic. I had to kind of translate for that, and I wanted the book to be a visual representation of that kind of dance, and so I brought to the publisher, I said, hey, how cool would it be to have of the book written in English and in Spanish. And they said, of course, yeah, we can do that. We can have our Spanish department come and translate the book, and we will print a whole, you know, Spanish version. I said, yeah, yeah, that's not what I mean. <clears throat> I said, what would it look like for the left side of the, of the book uh, to be all in Spanish and the right side of the book to be all in English, so that when you read the left side in Spanish, you would go to the right side and read what you just read in Spanish in English, and the book would essentially be the navigating, the switching of these two worlds. Uh, as you flip through the pages, you would switch through the worlds, and I pitched to them that the idea behind that was, that's how I lived my life, that in one moment I can be speaking in Spanish and navigating my immigrant culture, and in the next moment I could be navigating English and everything that that meant, and I thought that being able to flip through the pages could kind of uh, visualize that for people, whether they spoke Spanish or not, that they would have to kind of bend and contort themselves to the way that I had to exist, and, of course, the publisher said, oh, you know, that's a great idea. <laughs> but <laughs> we just can't afford that. This publisher was a relatively big publishing uh, company. Uh, so I didn't believe that, <laughs> that they couldn't afford it. Uh, they said, yeah, it just, you know, the binding, it'd make the book really big. And it's all true things. It would be more, much more expensive. And it would make the book much larger. But that's the way I lived my life. And for whatever reasons, look, I had a great experience with this publisher. They were fantastic. I have, nothing, I have mostly good things to say about them. Um, <clears throat> but it was at that moment, you know, that I realized that my publisher may not have seen this idea, which was reflective of my reality, as a kind of worthy financial investment. They just couldn't see it. Uh, they may not have seen me the way that I saw me. And I realized that I needed to 
be okay that I saw me, that I understood that this was the way I navigated the world. And I realized then that it's often the case that two seemingly opposing realities can live in the same place. So much of my upbringing, uh, this kind of intersectionality I saw as an obstacle, that I wasn't fully, you know, uh, a Spanish speaker in the way that my parents were because I wasn't born on the island, that I wasn't American in the deepest sense as a brown kid living in New York. I saw so much of my identity, those two opposing thoughts as an obstacle, but I realized in that moment that it wasn't an obstacle, rather it was an asset. That these two seemingly opposing realities can live in the same space. That the things that we have held as historically mutually exclusive aren't so allergic to each other. That they could live with one another. And that often, in fact, they can work together to produce the outcomes that I think we long for the most. Tension can produce the things that we long for the most. Our passage today helps us to realize that so much of what we want out of life, love, meaning, growth, to be pursued, to be celebrated, all of those things are discovered in the in-between, in the nuances of how we exist in the world, in the paradoxes, in the sort of contradictory life experiences that we live. That's where we discover the things that we long for the most. And this is especially true of our spiritual journey. And there is perhaps no better character in the Bible to teach us about these kinds of paradoxes than Peter. Several other characters, of course, but Peter seems to embody this really well. And Matthew 14 shows us this. I think a few things that we can take from this passage as we consider this tension, this nuanced journey Uh, that we travel with Jesus. The first is this. Faith begins with an unlikely request. Faith begins with an unlikely request. I want you to look at verse 28. We've set the scene up. The disciples are in the middle of the sea on this boat being battered by the winds and the waves. Jesus has been chilling alone, praying at the top of a mountain. And then all of a sudden, he walks his way toward where the disciples are. And, of course, the disciples are afraid because they can't quite make out who this person is, and let alone the fact that someone's walking on the water. And they're all afraid, and they're all terrified, not only by the storm, but by this ghostly figure. And Peter, after hearing the voice of what they assume or what they think is Jesus... Have courage, it is I. Peter makes the very bold response in verse 28 by saying, Lord, if it is you, then command me to come to you on the water. This sounds like a test. Only this time, Peter is the one testing and Jesus is the one being measured. Peter is the one doing the testing, and Jesus is the one being measured. And when Peter asked this, to me, it sounds as if Peter is asking Jesus a few kind of like subtext questions when he says, let me come to you if it's you. It's as if Peter is asking Jesus, how compassionate are you? 
It's as if Peter is saying, how deep does your concern go for us, Jesus? How powerful are you to sustain in the middle of our chaos? Peter is testing Jesus' level of commitment to his concerns, which in this case seems to be the storm, right? The concern that Peter has seems to be the storm. But surprisingly, Peter doesn't test Jesus' power by asking him to stop the storm. If the storm was his concern, he would have asked him to stop the storm. But surprisingly, Peter doesn't test Jesus' power or his abilities or his faithfulness by asking him to stop the storm, but rather by asking Jesus to empower him to do what he's doing, walk on water. In other words, the threat of the storm doesn't seem to be Peter's biggest concern. And that's interesting to me. Isn't it interesting that surrounded by nothing but water, with unimaginable winds tossing him and his friends about, the water threatening to swallow him and the disciples up, why in the world did Peter ask Jesus to demonstrate his power by allowing him to walk on water and not by asking him to stop the storm. Why did he choose to have Jesus have him walk on water and not by just stopping the storm? I know what I would have asked if I was Peter. I know that when my life is turned upside down by storms, by chaos, by hardship. The easiest words to say are, Lord, stop the storm. An appropriate prayer. It's appropriate to ask Jesus, stop the storm. Life is chaotic. Life is difficult. Life is hard. It's full of grief. It's full of loss. The easiest words out of my mouth are, Lord, stop all that's happening. Please, it's too much. And that is an appropriate prayer. It's just not the one that Peter says here. If you were being tossed around by the storms of life, if we were, if the winds of hardship were beating us against us, if we were being battered by the waves of loss and Jesus was standing in the middle of all of it, what would we ask him to do? What would be the best use of Jesus' power in that moment? What would we ask Jesus to do that would demonstrate most forcefully what he's capable of doing? This is the opportunity to make Jesus flex his muscles in the most clearest, forceful way. What's the way to do that? Peter thought that it was more valuable for Jesus to empower him to walk over the stormy waters than it was for Jesus to stop the storm altogether. But why? Does Peter see something that we don't? (laughs) Or at least that I don't. I'll speak for myself. Does Peter see something that I don't? Does Peter have a way about him that is worth paying attention? These two approaches 
have very different outcomes. Had Peter asked for Jesus to stop the storm, I'm sure he would have. I'm sure he would have. And it would have been miraculous and awe-inspiring, and it probably would have been the talk of the town. But up to that point, Jesus had had no shortage of miraculous, awe-inspiring moments with his disciples. In fact, just a few moments, just a few hours before this, in verses that we didn't read, Jesus had one of those moments with his disciples. Jesus fed 5,000 people plus with just five loaves of bread. And even before that, Jesus healed the sick that were among that large crowd. So the disciples were not strangers to Jesus doing something out of this world. The disciples were not strangers to the miraculous. So whether it was Peter asking for him to stop the storm or, Jesus, or Peter asking him to help him walk on water, both approaches lead to an outcome that demonstrates Jesus' great power. Both approaches lead to an outcome that demonstrates the uniqueness of Jesus as God. But only one approach can produce an outcome that fundamentally changes us from the inside out. Jesus could have very well done a miracle. Jesus could have very well just stopped the storm and done something incredibly miraculous. He had done it several moments before and he had done it for many years with the disciples up to that point. But Peter asking him to help him walk on water produces something different in Peter than if Jesus would have just stopped the storm. It fundamentally changes us from the inside out. I have two kids. I've mentioned this here before. You guys have seen them. And we have a 15-year-old, sophomore in high school. And I'm realizing that one of the greatest challenges of parenting at any stage, but particularly at the teenage stage, is being able to shape our kids to be a kind of person rather than just having them behave a kind of way. That when I look at my kids, I want to see them grow into be a kind of human being, a kind of citizen that exists in the world in a kind of way. And that feels very challenging because it's easy just to just influence the way that they uh, influence the way that they behave, that I could just create boundaries and rules at home and with the things that they have like phones and electronics and technology, it's so much easier to just create barriers and boundaries so that they behave in a certain way, but it doesn't guarantee that they become a certain kind of person, that to shape my kids and influence the kind of people that they are feels very challenging. It's difficult because shaping someone's character is not the same as influencing their behavior. But in order to do that, you have to make room for them to take risks. You have to make room for them to fail. And that means that the likelihood of them experiencing pain and hurt increases. And that's really difficult as a parent. To kind of create this, the, the, the environment where your kids can take a risk and fail. 
And it seems as though as they get older, it feels like the stakes are higher. (laughs) Yeah, this is not to minimize how grave the stakes can feel when they're younger. I mean, the stakes feel big at any stage. But as I navigate teenage years, my son could make one wrong move and change the course of his life. It feels like the stakes are higher. But I want him to become a kind of person. And in order to do that, I have to create a kind of environment that allows for risks. But to welcome risks also welcomes failure. And welcoming failure welcomes pain and hurt. And that's hard. But it seems like the only way to influence character more than just influencing behavior. And what we see here with Peter and Jesus is that rather than asking Jesus to stop the storm, Peter asked Jesus to become a kind of person that can stand in spite of the storm. An interesting request, but one that I think shapes the way that Peter exists in the world. An interesting request, but one that I think will change the way that we exist in the world. But this passage also invites us to see that tension produces the best kind of growth. Tension produces the best kind of growth. In verse 29, Jesus responds to Peter's proposition. He says, come. I wonder if Jesus knew who he was welcoming when he said that. (laughs) I wonder if Jesus knew who he was saying come to. I wonder if Jesus knew what kind of Peter he was inviting when he said come. And not just the Peter of this moment on the boat trying to walk on water. But considering all the moments of Peter that made him this Peter... That would be daring enough to make this ask and step onto this water during a storm. I wonder if Jesus knew all of who Peter was and all the interesting dynamics and complexities of who Peter was and what made Peter this Peter at this moment. I've said this here before. Peter's an interesting character. Comical a little bit. Peter is among the most complicated and accurate depictions of humanity. Peter is the first to praise Jesus and the first to yell at him. Matthew 16, for your reference. The first to praise Jesus and the first to yell at him. Peter is the first to understand Jesus' identity and the first to fail at understanding the cost of his identity. Peter is the first to declare his loyalty to Jesus, and he is the first to deny Jesus when he needed him most. Jesus asks Peter to pray with him, and Peter is the first to fall asleep. And now, Peter is the only one with enough faith to even think about taking a step out of that boat, but he is also the only one with enough doubt to sink after a few moments. By stepping out of that boat, Peter gives himself a chance to believe in Jesus. So admirable. While in the midst of this chaos, but that decision also came with the chance to sink, which he did. 
Faith, church, comes with both. Faith comes with both. Loyalty and unreliability. Loyal and unreliable. Faithful and doubtful. He is both. We are both. Barbara Brown Taylor imagines a scenario where Peter doesn't sink and Peter has perfect confidence to walk to Jesus. And she says this. The truth, however, about us is more complicated. The truth about us is that we obey and we fear. We walk and we sink. We believe and we doubt. But it is not like we do only one or the other. We do both. Our faith and our doubt are not mutually exclusive. They both exist in us at the same time, booing us up and bearing us down, giving us courage and feeding our fears, supporting our weight on the wild seas of our lives and sinking us like stones. And church, this is the tension that makes room for the real miracle of this story. This kind of complex existence of Peter and us, this tension is what gives birth to the real miracle that happens in this story. Can I go back to miracles for a moment? I don't think I've ever lived through a miracle in the way that I think we usually think about miracles. But I have experienced things that at one point were categorically impossible or unlikely and suddenly show up in my life as possible and likely. There was a point in our marriage very early on in New York City where we were facing eviction. We just weren't bringing up enough money. We were going through some financial hardship. And we had just a few days before we had to turn in a certain amount of money and, uh, and, and, and not be evicted. My wife and I were kind of at our wit's end trying to figure out how we were going to get past this moment. And one day I get home from work. I open up my mailbox, and in the mailbox, I see a check from an old friend for just the right amount that we needed. And I'm sure you've heard many stories like this. And, and honestly, <clears throat> I think about stories like this, and I, under, I, I kind of just overlook them. But as I process and reflected on that, I said, man, that, that felt like a miracle. Because I was in a moment that felt like this was just impossible. I didn't see the way we were going to come out of it. And then suddenly, things felt possible. And I realized in those moments, or in that moment, of what God was actually inviting us to see. What he was inviting us to do. Miracles captivate us. Because what was once known as impossible in your life suddenly becomes possible. And not only possible, but it becomes your reality. But miracles, if I can say this, captivate us because they also appeal to the part of us that's really happy to let God do everything. Right? That, that's what miracles are. When God steps in and does what, it, what there is no natural or logical alternative for. We say to ourselves, God must do all of this. He must intervene and do all of it. Otherwise, nothing happens. There is no miracle. So when I think about miracles, I, I almost think about, I really like miracles 
in part because I like the idea that God does everything. What we didn't read today that does come just before these moments is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Peter has just seen Jesus feed 5,000 plus people with some scraps that he and the disciples had. Peter is a witness of what Jesus is able to do with what felt like an insignificant amount of bread. The disciples were convinced that what they had wouldn't be enough for the crowds. And being the leader of the group, I am sure that Peter was the prominent voice urging Jesus in chapter 14, verse 15, you can reference that on your own, to send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus didn't send them away. Instead, he told the disciples what? You feed them. Jesus says, no, they're not going away. You feed them. And, of course, the disciples responded, we only have a little bit. Like, what you want us to do, bro? <laughs> like, you, see my, you see, my, see my little satchel? I've only got, like, five loaves of bread in here. We only have a little bit. And then Jesus' response is what? Give me the little bit that you have. And then, of course, he blesses it, and we know the rest of the story. What I love about that interaction and the way that it helps us to understand this idea of tension is that Jesus puts the responsibility on them. Jesus feeding the 5,000 won't just be Jesus' miracle. Instead, Jesus invites them to be a part of the miracle. I don't know if that was an amen or not, but I'm with it. I'm with with whatever just happened over here. Right? He won't allow this just to be his miracle. And so now, I wonder if in this moment on the boat, Peter is thinking about what Jesus did with the 5,000. It was just a a few hours ago. So I wonder if he's thinking about this. And as Peter struggles to have faith in Jesus, but has just enough faith to kind of nervously throw his foot over the boat and with his trembling feet place them on the water, I wonder if he's thinking about what Jesus was able to do with the insignificant amount of bread. And I wonder if he thought to himself, If Jesus is able to feed 5,000 with little bread, what can he do with little faith? Do any of us wonder what God can do with little faith? Do any of us wonder if what we have can make a difference? If it's meaningful? If it's useful to Jesus, do any of us wonder if God wants to partner with with us to do something special or to do a miracle? But perhaps we've convinced ourselves that the little we have won't make a difference. That people should just go back to the village and get food for themselves. And Jesus is telling us, no, you feed them. But I have a little. Give me the little that you have. I will bless it, 
and there will be leftovers. You see, it was this very weird, complex tension that Peter existed with that made room for this miracle. And Jesus invites us to the same. And then my last thought. Nothing inspires worship like compassion. It's really easy to assume here that they worship Jesus at the very end when we read in verse 33. Uh, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. So the storm does stop. But it feels, it feels like a parenthesis. It, it almost feels secondary. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat, the disciples, worshipped him and said, truly, you are the Son of God. It's easy to assume here that they worshipped Jesus because Jesus finally stopped the storm. And I think that may have played a part, but I don't think it was the driving force of their worship. The disciples are driven to worship Jesus, not because he stopped the storm, but because he gave Peter the chance to fail and still saved him. These moments with Peter are emblematic of Jesus' real power to save. And it's not just to stop the storm. His real power comes not in stopping the storm, but in his ability to save us despite the consequences of our doubt. Could you imagine? Jesus said, come, knowing very well how complex Peter's faith and doubt existed in him. He says, come, come that way. And what we saw thereafter is the result of that complexity. Someone who's able to walk on water for a few moments and then sink because of their doubts. And Jesus looks at him and to some degree gives him a more paradoxical response. He says, you of little faith, why do you doubt as he saves him? It is both a judgment and a comfort. He says, yo, man, you had such little faith. Why do you doubt? But he still saves him. His doubt isn't an indictment on him. It's rather the thing that intensified Jesus' pursuit of him. I wonder how much we can see happen in our lives when we welcome both our faith and our doubt. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for showing that you give us the chance to have faith and also make room for us to fail, to fall, to sink, but also to save us despite it. God, let that be a comfort to our souls as we navigate our complex faith, how it lives in relationship to our doubt, but how it inspires your pursuit of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.